Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message in the world, not of it. All right, well, after Paul started the church at Corinth, remember around AD 51, he stayed there for a year and a half discipling the new believers. During that time, his central message was simply this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what it's all about. That's the the main foundational message of any church, should be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, in addition to that message, he also, it says in Acts 18.11, he taught the word of God to them for that year and a half. And so all was great in Corinth until Paul left Corinth. And that's when everything began to unravel. How many of you guys know that everything rises and falls on leadership? It's true in a church. It's true in the world. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And so for at least a year and a half, the church of Corinth enjoyed the strong and the godly leadership of the apostle Paul. The problem is when he left, other leaders came in who were not strong and they certainly were not godly. Rather, they were weak and they were compromising. And so because of the poor leadership in the church of Corinth, the church of Corinth was filled with problems. You guys remember the problems. We repeat them almost every week. Stuff like envy and strife, divisions and lawsuits, Christians suing Christians, sexual immorality, unbiblical divorces, the abuse of Christian liberties, the abuse of spiritual gifts, the abuse of the Lord's communion, supper table, and doctrinal error. Now, now here's what's sad. In the first century AD, when people outside the church of Corinth looked into the lives of the members of the church of Corinth, the people on the outside couldn't tell whether the people on the inside were believers or non-believers. The people on the outside couldn't tell if those people in the church are Christian or non-Christian. And so that's sad, right? Because Christ has called us to be different. How many of you guys believe that the church, the true church, that we should be different from the world, right? Do you believe that? Jesus said, you're the light of the world. Let's, let, let, he says, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are bearers of the light. We are bearers of God's image. Lost people who do not know the Lord They're not bearers of the light. We are. Now, the mistake that people make in the church is they become so disheartened with what's going on in the world, they separate so much from the world, they kind of, kind of, you know, go off into a corner somewhere, and they don't let their light shine. And that's sad. Why? Because the Lord wants us to be in the world. Listen to this. He wants us to be in the world, but not of it. And so the problem in the church of Corinth is that they were in the world, but they were also of it. And one of the big problems in the church of Corinth was this issue of the church leadership tolerating sexual immorality within the church. Paul heard of this problem, and he knew he had to deal with it head on. 
So we're gonna start in chapter five, verse one. Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality, in the Greek is pornea. There is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. When Paul heard the report of the sexual immorality that was being tolerated in the church of Corinth, he must have shaken his head in disbelief. He says, it's actually reported, in other words, I can't believe this, that there's sexual immorality going on in the church. Okay, so what is the Greek word sexual immorality mean anyway? Well, when you look it up, Blue Letter Bible, you look at the word pornea, it means, quote, illicit sexual intercourse. When you see the way that word is used in various places, it includes adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, etc., etc. Notice that the definition does not include sexual intercourse within marriage. Why not? Because God created sex for marriage. By the way, isn't God an amazing creator? Who else but God could make something so incredible? It's like glue that binds a married couple together, allows them to enjoy pleasure with each other for the rest of their lives, and produces children on top of that. Who but God can do that? No wonder the Lord said in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 4, he says, marriage is, what's the next word? Honorable. Honorable among all. And the bed, undefiled. But fornicators, that's people who engage in sex before they're married. And adulterers, that's people who engage in sex after they're married with someone who's not their spouse. What's the last three words? God will judge. Doesn't say maybe. That's not an Old Testament verse, that's in the New Testament. He says that he will judge. Now, sex within marriage is honorable, but any sex outside of marriage is dishonorable. And by the way, quick side note, here at Calvary Poor St. Lucie, we still understand that the definition of marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman, period, <laughs> period. Listen, no matter what the Supreme Court voted on in the last three days, God did not change the definition of marriage. He did not. And as, as I heard one guy say, the Supreme Court is not the supreme being. They're just a bunch of fallen men, even though I don't know some of their hearts, maybe some of them know the Lord, maybe they don't, I don't know. But, but the, the, the verdict was wrong. But that doesn't change God at all. God didn't change his definition of marriage because God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. And by the way, another quick side note, church family, don't let your heart get discouraged over that, that vote the last few days. I heard one guy on the radio, it was so sad, a Christian guy, he's like, man, I feel like Christians, we're like at the, at the at home plate, we have a straw, and the world keeps throwing 100, ball, 100 mile an hour fastballs, and we keep striking out, and everything's falling apart. Listen, everything is not falling apart. Everything is coming together for the coming of Jesus Christ, our King. 
It's happening exactly like he said it was going to happen in his word. The Bible does not say things are going to get better and better and better, and somehow the church's influence is going to bring in the coming of Jesus Christ. No, we're not post-millennialists. We understand we're pre-millennialists, that everything's going to get worse and worse, and the Lord is going to come back, and he's going to take back what is rightfully his, and as the king, he will rule over the earth. Okay, and so this is just another sign that we're getting closer and closer. Who knows the day? Who knows the hour? It doesn't matter. But ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is king, and we cannot change his word. And so be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. The world has rebelled against God's standard for sex. And the reason, the, and the, the result of this rebellion of the world against God's standard for sex is that this is why you have multitudes of sexually transmitted diseases all over the earth. Syphilis, gonorrhea, AIDS, right? It, just think for a moment. If everybody actually did what God said, save sex for marriage, all those diseases go away. All that heartache goes away. Not only that, but if everybody just did what God said, there wouldn't be broken marriages, there wouldn't be broken homes. There wouldn't be kids growing up with broken hearts because dad cheated on mom or mom cheated on dad or whatever. We have to be so understanding of the fact that, listen, when you deviate from God's plan, the result is always pain. But our father would spare us if we would just follow his love letter. Right? It's just like you as a mom and dad. I've said this a thousand times before. But if you have a little two-year-old and he walks around the stove when you're trying to cook dinner, are you going to let that little kid stand up on a stool and put his hand on the burner? No, you love him. You may even do that. You'll do whatever it takes to save that kid from burning his hand. Well, God's done everything he can do to try to warn the world. But we continue to thumb our noses at him. And so the only thing left is judgment. And that's God's business. It's above my pay grade. We expect the world to be filled with immorality. But shouldn't the church be different? Shouldn't the church be different than our surrounding culture? Absolutely. But the church at Corinth was not different and that's why Paul rebuked them here. Look at verse 1 again. He said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. What was the specific issue that Paul was dealing with here in the church of Corinth? It was incest. Remember, sexual immorality, pornea, is a broad term. It includes any kind of sex outside of marriage. But the specific issue here was incest, which was a sin that was not even named among the Gentiles or the unbelievers. The, the citizens of the Roman Empire, they engaged in all sorts of sexual immorality, but incest was uncommon. And Roman law actually forbade, uh, forbade uh, incest. Now, I want you to notice the word has at the end of verse 1. He says that a man has his father's wife. 
The indication there in the original language is that this was not a one-night stand, but rather the issue was that these two people were living together in an unrepentant, deliberate, willful way. And so the word has in, at the end of verse one is telling us this, that a woman left her husband for her husband's son. And so the law of Moses has a lot to say about that. Did you know that? Check it out, Deuteronomy 27, 20. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. Deuteronomy 27, verse 20. Now, whenever somebody quotes from the Torah, you always have people who will say, well, well, wait a minute, I thought we were under grace. We're not under the law, Pastor Mike, we're under grace. Well, I would agree that we may not be under the ceremonial dictates of the law of Moses. As far as I know, nobody here um, from sundown this Friday till sundown on Saturday is gonna cease from all working. As far as I know, nobody here is um, gonna keep a kosher diet, though you might for dietary reasons or whatever, but you're not gonna do it to earn a relationship with God, right? You're not gonna do that. You're not gonna um, uh, eat a kosher diet. A lot of us are gonna go have a a great meal this afternoon. We're gonna praise God for our pork ribs this afternoon, okay? Okay, That's what we Gentiles do, all right? And so we're not keeping the Sabbath Friday uh, on Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. We're not necessarily keeping a kosher diet. We're not keeping all the Jewish feast days throughout the year. I would admit we are not under the ceremonial or dietary dictates of the law of Moses, but we are absolutely under the moral dictates of the law of Moses. Absolutely. And we don't, as born-again Christians, we don't keep God's moral law to be saved. We keep God's moral law because we're saved. We're already saved. That's where you got to get this. We're not telling you go back to the Torah, keep the Torah so you can earn a right relationship with God. That's heresy. What we're saying is that by grace are you saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works as anyone should boast. And now because I'm saved, because God has poured out his grace on me, now what I want to do is I want to say, God, thank you for your grace. And in response to your grace, with the help of your Holy Spirit, now I'm going to do my best to run from things like idolatry or murder, right, or adultery. I'm gonna honor my my mom and dad. And not only that, but I'm not gonna steal and I'm not gonna covet and I'm certainly not gonna commit incest. Holy Spirit, help me not to be saved, but because I'm saved. God's moral law doesn't change, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't change for the church. And by the way, the Ten Commandments don't change for the world either. And they can either obey it or not, it's up to them. Now, that was not the attitude of the Corinthians. The Corinthians did not have the attitude, God, thank you for your grace. In response to your grace, with the help of your spirit, I'm going to keep your moral law. That wasn't their attitude. What was their attitude? Verse two, Paul says, and you're puffed up. You're puffed up about a man in your church who's living with his stepmom. You're prideful, and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken 
away from among you. There were two sins going on in the church of Corinth. The sin of the man living in incest and the sin of the leaders who were ignoring it. Now, why in the world would the church leadership ignore this situation? Why in the world, instead of putting him out of the church, why would they accept this man who's living with his stepmom, why would they accept him as a member in good standing? Well, we don't know. Probably it's because the church leadership didn't want to be known as judgmental. Probably because the church leadership didn't want to have the reputation of being intolerant. And so what they did is they, they had this, this idea, you know what, we're just going to be so loving, we're going to accept everybody and anybody into the membership of our church, no matter what their lifestyle is. We are so accepting, getting more and more puffed up. We are so loving in this church, getting more prideful. And they refused to deal with the situation. And Paul is shaking his head because he had no problem dealing with this situation. Put your seatbelts on and read verses three through five. He said, for I indeed as absent in the body but present in the spirit have already judged as though I were present. Him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow. He says in verse two that this man should be taken away from among you. He says in verse 5, he should be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He says in verse 7, purge out the old leaven that they may be a new lump. He says in verse 13, put away from yourselves the evil person. Ladies and gentlemen, could Paul be any clearer? Now, here's what you got to understand. Who was Paul? He was an apostle. What did the first century church do? In Acts 2, 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles, Peter, James, John, Matthew, including Paul later, the church submitted themselves to the authority of the apostles because they understood that the apostles had been with Jesus, they had seen Jesus, and that the Lord was speaking through them, and they were speaking the word of God. And when they wrote the New Testament, they were writing the word of God. And as a Christian, you have two choices. You can either submit yourself to the authority of God's word, or you can say, I don't like what it says right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to make up my own morality, and you can choose not to submit to the authority of God's word. It's your choice. I'd rather submit to the authority of God's word because I know that is where the blessings are. And so Paul was very clear, and it leads us to your next point, and that is that we must exercise church discipline with the goal of protecting the flock as well as restoring the erring believer. Now, notice, first of all, the goal 
of church discipline is to protect the flock. Paul says in verse 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It spreads throughout the church. So I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But it's a pastor's job not just to teach the word, but to protect the flock. But not only that, the other goal is to restore the erring believer. The goal of all church discipline is not to kick somebody out and cuss at them while they're leaving. The goal of church discipline is hopefully to eventually restore that brother or that sister to a right relationship with the Lord and his church. And it is his church. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are, what's the word? That's the spirit-filled people in the church. It could be pastors, it could be elders, but it could be all y'all, part of the bad English. Anybody who's filled the Holy Spirit in the church. If a person is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, what's the word? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And so, ladies and gentlemen, don't just leave this kind of work to the pastors and elders. It's a responsibility for everybody here. If you're a spirit-filled believer, you love the Lord, and you see a brother or sister that is in unrepentant sin, it is your responsibility to go to that person gently with the goal of restoration and to call that person out for the sin that's going on in their lives. But what if they ignore me? Well, there's another passage in the Bible that gives some clear guidelines for the topic that we're talking about. So please hold your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Take a left and please go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And we're, we're gonna start in verse 15. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, Bring a bunch of your friends with torches and confront him. Is that what it says? Moreover, if your brother sins against you, cuss him out and go on Facebook, tell everybody what a jerk he is. Is that what it says? All right, let's try to do this one more time. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him, what? Alone. Oh, man, if we only listen to the Lord. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Okay, so if you're taking notes, here's the first step. You got to keep the matter private. This would save so much hurt, so much heartache, so much humiliation in the body of Christ. Jesus says, go alone. The reason he says go alone, can you imagine if, let's say you slipped up. And can you imagine tonight, 8 o'clock, you get a knock on your door, you open the door, there's five guys out there ready to call you out for your sin. How hurt would you be? How humiliated would you be? It could just be dealt with, in a, if, it, if it was just dealt with in a loving, gentle, private way, it would save a lot of church hurt. And by the way, there is a lot of church hurt out there. And it's sad. Look at verse 16. He still ignores if I go alone. Verse 16. But if he will not hear, 
take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so the next step, if you're taking notes, not only keep the matter private, but now ask for help from mature saints. Mature saints. And the reason I want to emphasize that is because in every local church, there's mature people and there's immature people. And if you take immature people with you, in step number two, what you're going to find a lot of times is that the people who go with you are automatically going to take your side. And that's not good. What you're going to find is they're going to prejudge the person. They're already going to have the person condemned in their mind and heart. That's not good. What you're going to find is that they're going to gossip about the situation later. They're going to call a friend. Hey, brother, I just, I'm going through this, 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 this situation, and I just don't know what to do. I need some counsel. And so hey, don't tell anybody, but here's what's going on. Me and another person and another person went to this person's house, and, and, and we we're trying to deal with this situation. I don't know what to do. And then that person, after he gives his counsel, calls another person. I want to make sure this counsel was right. And so I'm calling you, and here's what's going on. And the gossip spreads throughout the church. I was a care pastor for about four years at another Calvary Chapel down in Jupiter before I came up here with my wife and started this church. And one thing I learned as a care pastor, you keep your mouth shut. You zip your lips. Because people will feel so betrayed if they find out that you've been talking with somebody else about their private matter. So take mature people, mature people, here's what they do. What they do is they go in humility. They listen objectively to both sides. They don't gossip about it. Now, what happens if the person still ignores the counsel? Look at verse 17, just the first part of the verse. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Okay, so the next point here is involve the church leadership. If you've taken one or two other people, the person is still upset and not, not budging, here's what you don't do. Here's what the Lord was not saying. He's not saying on Sunday morning, come up and interrupt Pastor Mike and say, I got an announcement for the church or something I've been going through. No, we're not going to do that here. We're still keeping the matter private. Right? At first it was private between you and the other person. Then it was private between you and another person and that person. But now it's still private between you, the other person, and the church leadership. We don't talk about these things. They're personal issues. But it is absolutely important that you obey the Lord here and you get the church leadership involved. Now, here's what we're not going to do as pastors and elders in this church. We are not going to step in and try to resolve every quarrel that you have with people in your lives, especially people who don't go to this church. All right, so if your neighbor's sprinkler is hitting your driveway, please don't call Pastor Bob and say, I want to set up a meeting with me and my neighbor and you, because Pastor Bob's going to say no. <laughs> We're not going to get involved with people outside of the church. Now, if it's you and if someone else in this church and you're both members or you're both released regular attenders, then we will absolutely try to help in any way possible. 
But, but man, I, I'm telling you, we get calls from people and then their, their family members are upset and they want us to intervene with family members who don't even go to church here. All right, let me save you the phone call. The answer is no, we're not gonna help you. It's not our job to help you. There's only 24 hours in every day. I work six days a week. I barely get in time to do everything that I've got to do. And so there's no way we can resolve every quarrel in the church. Keep the matter private. Ask for help from mature saints. Involve the church leadership. And then what if he continues to ignore the counsel? Now, last step at the end of verse 17. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. And so your fourth and final step According to Jesus, excommunicate the erring person. That is absolutely the job of the pastors and elders in the church. And you might say, Pastor Mike, this is very uncomfortable. I don't like that word, and I don't like what I'm hearing here. Well, guess what? Take it up with the author. I'm just his spokesman. I'm just teaching through his word. And so... What if the person still is obstinate? What if they still won't listen? Then the pastors and the elders understand we're not dealing with just someone who sinned against their brother. What we're dealing with here is someone who's hard-hearted, puffed up, and in rebellion to God. Now question, it's okay to answer back if you want. Is it really smart or healthy for us to allow people into this fellowship or into life groups who are hard-hearted, puffed up, and in open rebellion to the leadership of this church or to God. Is that healthy or smart? No. And you might say, well, Pastor Mike, if we just keep him into the fellowship, then we can all love on him, and maybe he'll stop sleeping with his stepmom. No. That's not what Paul said. In fact... And by the way, before I go to what Paul said, look at verse 18. When it gets this far, and I would have to admit, step four is rare. But when it gets this far, you need to know that God's authority is behind the decision of the leadership of the church. Where do you get that? Verse 18. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In the context, that verse is talking about church discipline. And what the Lord is saying is that the, whatever the elders and pastors of that local church say on earth will be agreed upon in heaven. God's authority stands behind the spirit-filled leader's decision. Look at what Paul said. I want you to turn back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let me do another quick side note. We assume that there were at least some people in the church of Corinth that tried to bring this person to a place of restoration. In fact, we do know that Paul had already written this church a letter. Did you know that you're actually reading 2 Corinthians? And 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. 
Because Paul actually already wrote this church a letter that's been lost. We don't have it in the canon of our scripture. And in that letter, he specifically talked how to deal with people who are involved in sexual immorality. And so we assume, based upon Paul's teachings in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, that there were at least some people in the church that tried to restore this brother. They tried to go through the process. But for whatever reason, when they got to step four, they were unwilling to act. And so Paul said this now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What the Apostle Paul is saying here to the leaders of this church is when you're gathered together, I personally don't think this is a Sunday morning type of deal because there's lots of people that don't know the Lord that come in on Sunday morning, okay, that they don't need to be a part of all this. It's a, it's a gathering of the church, but it's a gathering of the members of the church. And Paul is telling this church in Corinthians, gather together, and I want you to put the guy out. And when you put the guy out, he's gonna be fair game for the enemy's attacks, so that leads you to your next point, people who are properly excommunicated. That's important because I'm sure um, that there are churches that don't have spirit-filled leaders and stuff like this is totally mishandled. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a healthy church with spirit-filled leaders. When someone is properly excommunicated from the church, they are fair game for the enemy's attacks. So I'm gonna illustrate it this way. Some of you are freaking out right now because I just opened an umbrella inside of a room. Don't be superstitious, okay? Now, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. John writes to the Christian community, those who are part of the body of Christ. He says, we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, do you believe that? I do. Look at the decision two or three days ago. Okay, again, things are not getting better and better. They're getting worse and worse. And so we are of God, the Christian community. Those who are part of the body of Christ. He says, we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. They're unregenerate. They're, they're, they're in their natural state, and they don't even know it, but they're puppets of the enemy. Now, when a person, best that they know how, turns from their sins, and they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, I'm not talking about saying a little prayer after a pastor. What I'm saying is they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they realize that without Christ, they're damned to hell, and that Christ died so that they would not have to be damned to hell. And he bled so all their sins could be forgiven. And they know he's the only way. So they turn from the way they're going, the way of the world, and they turn to Christ, and they receive him authentically and sincerely as their Savior and Lord, trusting that what he did on the cross was payment for their sins. When that happens, the Holy Spirit comes inside of somebody. They become part of the body of Christ, and now... They are under the blessing and the protection of God. 
He says, we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. We are of God. People who are part of the church. According to Ephesians chapter 1, hey, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're going to receive an inheritance someday, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says that we've been foreknown, that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that we've been called, that we've been justified, that we've been glorified. Through God's grace, we are absolutely special, and we are under His protection, and we are under His blessing. That's the state of a born-again believer. But what happens on a rainy day when someone walks out from underneath an umbrella? They get wet. And when the spirit-filled leaders of a healthy church, and by the way, let me just give you another quick side note. I have no desire for this church to become a mega church. I have no desire to draw in thousands of people and skip around in the Bible and avoid the difficult parts of Scripture so we can attract a crowd. I have no desire to do that at all. If God wants to make us a mega church, that's fine. But we're going to go through the Word of God. We're going to communicate exactly what God's heart is. And by the way, um, sometimes that turns off a whole lot of people. But my desire is not to be a mega church. My desire is to have a healthy New Testament church that is under the authority of God's word. That's my desire. And so what Paul is telling the church leaders of this church, he's saying, put the guy out. When the spirit-filled leaders of a healthy church put the guy out or the lady out, what happens is they're going to get wet. They're out from underneath the covering of the local church. And now they are fair game to the enemy's attacks. Paul says, turn this guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What does that mean? That means the ruining of his flesh. In other words, this guy was going to come out from underneath the covering of that local church. He was going to be fair game to Satan. And just like Satan attacked Job's flesh, he was going to attack this guy's flesh. And the hope is that because the enemy is having his way in this guy's life, that is going to cause this guy to humble his heart and stop being a puffed up, rebellious person, humble his heart and come back underneath the protection and the blessing of the local church and get right with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of what is going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so, Paul says, man, you guys got to act. You got to take this seriously. Now, this is the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. But we have to obey the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. You know, this attitude that you have that you're going to accept anybody and everybody, no matter what their lifestyle is, as members in good standing, and you're going to be all puffed up about how accepting and how tolerant you are. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Right? Everybody knows that when you're cooking and you have the dough and you introduce leaven or yeast into that dough and you mix it up, that yeast is going to spread throughout the dough and it's going to cause the bread to rise. 
That's why unleavened bread is flat. And so Paul is saying in the same way that when you put yeast into dough, it changes the entire complexion of the loaf. So when you allow unrepentant sin to go on in your church, what's going to happen is that's going to spread and it could change the entire complexion of the church. Leaven, by the way, is usually, most of the time, it's a symbol of evil or sin in the Bible. So you have to get rid of it. Just like if you had malignant cancer in your stomach and it's spreading, that the doctors are going to try to cut it out. And I would hope that nobody would stand outside the surgeon, the surgical room and scream out, you're so intolerant. You're so judgmental. You're causing so much pain. No. He's actually being very loving to that person because sometimes the truth hurts. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this bothers people because we think it's all about our loving acceptance and our tolerance. It's not about that. It's about people's repentance before a holy God. Look at verse 7. He says, therefore, purge out the old leaven. Remember, leaven represents evil. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, I love this, Christ our, please underline the word, Passover. Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The idea there, the analogy there is the feast of unleavened bread. I'll explain it in a moment. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so, real quick, because I understand that there's always people here who have no background in the Bible, let me give you the quick history to Passover. Way back in Exodus, when God was getting ready to deliver the Jews from their Egyptian slavery. He told Moses to give all the children of Israel a very important message. He said, I want every family among the children of Israel to go and find a spotless lamb. And then I want them to kill that lamb. And then I want them to drain the blood of the lamb into a basin and then take some hyssop and dip it into the blood. And then I want every family, I want you to take that lamb's blood and I want you to go to the door frame of your home. Now watch this. And I want you to apply the blood to the doorpost and to the lintel of the door frame. By the way, what is that a symbol of? The cross. Why should we do that? Because God says, I'm sending the death angel. I've had it up to here with Egypt. Egypt represents the world. I've had it up to here with their rebellion and their puffed up spirit and they thought they can thumb their nose at me and so I'm gonna send judgment. And the death angel's gonna fly over every home in Egypt, both the homes of the Egyptians and the homes of the Jews who are slaves living in Goshen, Egypt. And sure enough, the death angel came and he flew that night over all the homes. And when he flew over the Egyptian homes, he did not see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of those homes. And so the death angel went in and he struck the firstborn dead. 
And as he flew across the Goshen, Egypt, he saw the Jews' homes and he saw the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross and he passed over those homes, right? Now, Pharaoh wakes up the next day, the guy who's all puffed up, the guy who thinks he's all that, the guy who thinks that Yahweh is just some small territorial God. He had something to, to, to learn, didn't he? There's still people today in their theology books saying that Yahweh is just a territorial God. Give me a break. He is the God of God and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so what happened was the, the, the death angel passed over those homes. Pharaoh wakes up the next day. He's screaming because his son is dead. He sees that all the firstborn sons throughout the land of the Egyptians are dead. And he finally breaks. Sometimes God's got to go to extreme measures to break us. He finally breaks and he lets the children of Israel free. Now, from that monumental event, Jews for centuries celebrate the feast of Passover. They're celebrating the death angel passing over the homes of their ancestors way back in the book of Exodus. And so how does that, or what does that have to do with anything concerning us in the new covenant? Well, before I apply it, let me remind you that after the feast of Passover, the Jews celebrated the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. And during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were told by God, get rid of all the leaven in your house. What does leaven represent? Sin, the world, Egypt, everything in their old life. Get it out. Okay, so what in the world does that mean to us? What that means to us, look at it again. Go ahead and read verses 7 and 8 silently. I'll read it aloud. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, Christ is our Passover, he's our lamb, was sacrificed for us. So what should our response be? Therefore, let us keep the feast. He's not saying we have to go back and keep some Jewish feast. He's speaking allegorically here. Keep the feast, like the feast of unleavened bread. Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so here, here's your next point. Christ's sacrifice for us should motivate us to remove everything that is evil from our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, please stay with me. I'm almost done, but you got to get this, okay? Get the heart of the New Testament here. As New Covenant, New Testament believers, we do not go kill lambs and put the blood of the lambs on our doorposts. At least I hope none of you are doing that. Why? Because Christ was slain for us from the foundation of the world. What do we do? By faith, we apply his blood to the door frame of our hearts. How do you do that? You turn from your sins and you receive him as your Savior and Lord. And when you do that, you will escape the wrath to come. The wrath is coming. I don't know why churches in America aren't preaching this, but the wrath is coming to this world. So are you covered with the blood of the lamb? Because it's your only way of escape. I'm a moral person. That doesn't matter. I'm righteous. That doesn't matter. I do good. That doesn't matter. I'm following my own religion, my own thing. That doesn't matter. 
The only thing that's going to save you from the, the death angel is the blood of the lamb. You got to come to Christ. He's the only way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, when he forgives all our sins with his blood, you know what that does for me? It motivates me to live for the world, to go back to my own life, to go back to Egypt, to embrace leaven? No. What, is, what that does, it, it encourages me to get rid of all the leaven from my life. Just like the Jews celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, and they got all the leaven out. And it, Christ, my Passover, who died for me, encourages me and motivates me to live for him, to never go back. We sang about it earlier today. There's no turning back to the old life. There's no turning back to the sin. That's why those of you right now who are living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're back in Egypt. What are you doing? You're embracing leaven. What are you doing? You can't do that. Christ was sacrificed for you. And so you have to obey his moral law out of a heart of gratitude. That means, guys, man up and marry her. Make her respect, respect her. Love her. You're still back in the world. You're not right with God. You gotta get right with the Lord. Please. Please. Get right with the Lord. Make an appointment with Pastor Bob or one of the pastors. Go through pre-marriage counseling and marry the person. Separate this week from that person that you're living with and having sex with. Go through the pre-marriage counseling, get married before God, and then enjoy his gift. And so that's what the Corinthians were not willing to say. They had poor leadership in their church. And when people on the outside looked on the inside of that church, they couldn't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And shame on the leaders for not teaching the word of God as the apostle Paul did. We're just gonna read verses nine through 13 and then we're gonna close in prayer. But stay with me here because this is some of the best stuff in the whole chapter, okay? He said, I wrote to you in my epistle, remember the one that was lost? Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now everybody look at me for just a second. They got the first letter from Paul. He says, don't hang out with sexually immoral people. And they misunderstood him. They thought he meant all sexually immoral people. And so they actually stopped hanging out with lost people. Now, what does Paul have to say to that? Look at verse 10. He says, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world <laughs> or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. Now again, please look at me. Don't, again, don't allow the world to so discourage you that you kind of go off into a, a corner and separate yourself from everybody who's a sinner because then you'd have to separate from yourself. All of us deal every day in our lives with sexually immoral people. They don't know the Lord. The worst thing we can do is shun them. That's not the church, are you kidding me? The worst thing we can do is be 
homophobic. The worst thing we can do is to separate from people who need Jesus. Why? They need the same love and touch that you received. They need the same forgiveness of sins that you received. And so Paul's saying, I'm not telling you to stop hanging out with people in the world who are sexually immoral. No, get out there. Let your light shine. He's, and by the way, he's not saying be their best friend. We understand that, right? I don't need to go off into another sermon. Your best friends should be believers who know and love Jesus Christ. But you absolutely should be rubbing shoulders with lost people. Look at verse 11. He says, but now I have written to you not to keep company, here's where it gets hard, with anyone named a what? A brother, someone who says, I'm a Christian, they're in church, okay? Don't keep company with a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Ladies and gentlemen, because when we do that, what we're doing is we're endorsing their lifestyle and we can't do that. He says, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Now, awesome, awesome. Look at me for a second here. Do you hear that? Paul says, what do I have to do for judging those who are on the outside? Calvary Port St. Lucie, what are we doing judging lost people? Why are we looking down at lost people as if they should have the same standard that we have? Why do we expect them to live the lives that we live? They're lost. They need the Lord. He says at the end of verse 12, do you not judge those who are on the inside? That's where we need to focus. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Okay? God is going to judge this nation in his own time for the decision that was just made three days ago. That's not our job. It's God's job. We need to take care of ourselves. And when you do that, sometimes it gets tough at the end of verse 13. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. God's word is awesome. It's awesome. But we got to know his word. We have to know his word. We have to live his word. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.